Mercy Gate. Thank you guys for joining in once again. To reiterate, if you are a guest with us, uh, please fill out the link uh, in the description, link description there. There is a Google form that you can jump into. We can in interact a little bit in terms of providing information there so we can keep you in prayer. Uh, to the rest of you, just grateful that you are uh, dialing in uh, this morning. Uh, a few announcements and then jumping into prayer. Uh, first and foremost, there was a uh, COVID survey that was sent out. Once again, we would love to see you fill that out so we know how to kind of lead in this uh, next season, uh, just understanding where your concerns may lie and also then uh, helping us to navigate uh, those concerns as well as the unique season that we are in. Uh, so please get that back to us. We're hoping to make some decisions in the next week or so in terms of how we'll move forward as a church, particularly with our Sunday gatherings. So that information uh, is very helpful to us if you can get that done as soon as possible. Also then next week, uh, we're going to do another recording for next week and have a Zoom meeting afterwards. That Zoom meeting is going to involve some kind of family business. Of course, at the end of the year, we typically go over budget. We look towards the next year looking at that budget. So we're going over finances. We're also going to go over a few other things in terms of the statement of faith that has been redone within our denomination. There hasn't been any massive changes. It's more or less clarifying and firming up. Uh, what we already believe to be doctrinally true. And so uh, we'll be going through some of those details as well. So we'd encourage you to um, jump on Zoom after the recording next week. We'll have a bit of a family meeting. If you're not a member, feel free to jump in anyhow. This is a family meeting kind of opened up to kind of showing you what we're all about when it comes to the year closing out and also looking to uh, the year ahead. So we invite you to consider that and also be on the look for an email that will be coming out this week to just give uh, some details along the lines of what we'll be talking about uh, next Sunday in the Zoom meeting. As we look to prayer then, uh, Isaiah 30, the Lord has kind of brought this to mind through this particular season. Um, and it's obviously we're going through difficulty within our culture um, uh, within our just kind of norm, normal experiences, uh, things are difficult uh, in different ways for each person. And yet Isaiah 30, um, it states this, the Lord Yahweh waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Perhaps through affliction, perhaps through difficulty, it, it feels as though it's a waiting experience. Where is God in the midst of our difficulty and hardship? Well, the text goes on to say, this is God who is gracious and merciful. For it states, a people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. And there will be a time where you will weep no more. This is what the king will do for us. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher, the king, the teacher, will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. The fact of the matter is that through affliction, divert, um, difficulty, what God does is he refines our hearts. He hears our cries. And yes, while it is something of a waiting game where we're calling on God, come, meet our needs, come and help us. Uh, the text says, wait on him. He will be faithful. And yet through the waiting, he hears you. And through the waiting, he will teach you. He will give you eyes to see him. You will, he will give you ears to listen to him. And he will begin to refine your hearts. You'll come to the point where you recognize that the idols that we look to in this cultural and in this world 
do not satisfy. They cannot satisfy. It's Yahweh who alone can satisfy. And so let's not waste the kind of difficult season that we've been through. God is teaching us things through this process. The king himself who has come is now by his spirit teaching his people and leading us through times of adversity and times of affliction. But he does that to refine our hearts, to prove himself, to prove his grace, to prove his mercy again, but to refine his people. So let's pray together. We're going to be praying for just a few things. Grace Life Center in Liberia, it's where uh, the area to which the, the barrels will be sent. There's been a few delays in that process, uh, particularly with some uh, car accidents and different things. Again, adversity and affliction has come. And so that's slowed things down a little bit, but we're hoping to send those barrels uh, fairly soon. Also then, I just wanna pray for us as a church in general, that God would sanctify to us our deepest distress. That, that through the afflictions, through the, even the fears and the difficulties, that there would be a refinement taking place in our hearts, that we would see the teacher and hear from the teacher, that the Lord himself would lead us. And finally, uh, we're going to be praying for Sovereign Grace Church in Marlton. They've gone through uh, a fairly difficult time. Um, many of the even pastors contracting COVID, and, and so they're, they're, they're juggling situations and circumstances right now as a church. And so we just want to pray for them, that they, again, would hear from the teacher and that they would behold the teacher, that God would sanctify to them their deepest distress. So let's pray together. God, we thank you that uh, even through a time of affliction, you are present. Thank you that you hear our cries. Uh, Lord, thank you that you're one who um, is teaching us through the affliction. So even now, Lord, we ask for eyes to see you. We ask for ears to be open to your teaching, to your truth. And I pray that through distress and through affliction, that you would show us the worthlessness, the emptiness of so much of the things that we run to in times of difficulty. We place our hopes on things that cannot satisfy. And so God, thank you that you would sanctify to us our deepest distresses, that you would do a work within such a difficult time. But we pray that you would grant us eyes to see you and ears to hear you, that we would discard those idols that we oftentimes look to. And so we pray for Grace Life Center in Liberia. We thank you for the light they are that amidst darkness. We thank you for Diana who is uh, leading that whole ministry. God, I pray for a unique grace upon him through the ups and downs of ministry, the concerns and, 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 and just the afflictions that are uh, attend ministry. We pray that you would grant him both eyes and ears to behold and to hear uh, his teacher, his king. Uh, so Lord, we also then pray for our own situations here. Uh, Lord, the numerous difficulties, some related to COVID in the season, others not related to this, this season in COVID. And so we thank you that you are in uh, the mess with us. Thank you that Jesus, you proved that in coming to us. And yet as the one who has lived and has gone to that cross and who has overcome it through your resurrection, thank you that you now are teaching us. You're, you've sent your spirit to open our eyes and open our ears to your truth. And so, Jesus, we pray that through this season, even doing all this online stuff and things being changed, we pray that you would create fruitfulness out of this. And I pray that part of that fruitfulness would be a refinement of our own hearts. Teach us uh, the good and the gladness of repentance. Show us what it is to turn back to you, to cast off the things that don't truly satisfy our hearts, to go after you. So Lord, have your sway upon us as a church. And finally, Lord, we pray for Sovereign Grace Church of Marlton. Uh, we thank you for um, the impact that they are having in the Marlton area. Thank you that they're close to us. Thank you for the friendship that pastorally we have with them. Thank you for the benefit that they've been to our own hearts. And now we pray something of protection upon them as a church, uh, but also for those who've contracted COVID. God, I pray that um, you grant them something of strength, but even through a time uh, where they... Are, are kind of under the burden of this sickness. I pray that 
as life slows down a bit, as they're not moving, as they're quarantined, I pray that there might be something of just sweet time and engagement with you, that they would see you, the great shepherd, the king, but also their ears would then be open to your truth and your teaching. So Lord, redeem the moments of affliction. We again thank you that you hear our cries through difficulty and we ask that you would invade and make a time of difficulty something that's incredibly fruitful. So God, advance your kingdom purposes through your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. As I... Uh get set up here i just want to say first of all thank you church family from the bottom of my heart and from my family uh, it's it's been a blessing this past year to be able to serve you guys here and um, through the generosity specifically of your giving to the church to be able to support me to be on staff here and to serve you but beyond that to come home from visiting family and to receive a christmas gift from the church is it's just an incredible honor and I'm very thankful I'm thankful to God that he provides for my family through you and I know I've said that before but I want to just publicly say that again thank you um, the Lord is honored through your generosity now would you guys turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 starting in verse 14 I'm sure you guys have heard this phrase before and I'm sure many of you have said it before. You had one job. That's it. One job. You know, I actually had some fun this past week and some entertainment doing a Google search of that phrase. You had one job. And uh, just, just do a Google image search of that phrase and you will get some good laughs. I'm sure I'm not the only one that had said that before. You just had one job. And I'm sure you guys have felt the frustration, the disappointment, even infuriation in those moments when you were expecting somebody to do something and they dropped the ball. Some of you who have had management experience even have a different perspective than those of us who are customers or clients. If you're a manager, the experience in that you had one job dilemma goes beyond just basic disappointment. When your employee or your subordinate, the person who you have selected and invested in and trained and positioned to accomplish something, repeatedly fails to do that thing, there, you can't help but feel something of a, a personal rejection. Your leadership attempts have been pushed back. There's been rebellion against your leadership. And so it's really frustrating. In those moments when a person has been put in position to do something and they fail to do it, they not only disregard their own reputation and their own sense of responsibility, but they actually dishonor their leaders and they misrepresent the ones who put them in that position. This type of ineffectiveness is bad for everyone involved. It's bad for the person, it's bad for the customer, it's bad for the boss. It just makes everyone look bad and it fails to do the intended purpose. In some situations, this dilemma could even be um, catastrophic. It could be fatal. I'm thinking about Tommy and Rich, who are firefighters. In those moments, if they fail to do their job where lives are on the line, this could be catastrophic and devastating. My point is that when you're positioned to do something and you fail to do it, there are consequences, and it is very bad. And so as we jump into the text today in Revelation, the church in Laodicea was caught in the middle of this dilemma. They were consistently and they were completely ineffective in their primary role as Jesus' golden lampstand. They had one job and they failed to do it. But they thought that they were good. They thought things were going well. They thought they were prospering. But the truth of their spiritual health, or the lack thereof, was actually a stark contrast to their own assessment of the way things were. 
So I'd like to spend our time this morning as we look at this text, examining the letter to Laodicea in terms of the problem and its cause, followed by the promise and its condition. The big idea where we're going today, the point of this message, is that if your witness for Christ has become ineffective by compromise and self-sufficiency, the only solution is earnest repentance. So let's read the text together. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me spend a moment to pray over this text and the reception of it. Spirit of God, I ask that you would come right now and meet us wherever we are as we hear these words. And I ask, Lord, that you would stir up within our hearts an understanding of the message of this letter, an understanding of our desperate need for you, God, And I pray that you would do the work of spiritual enlightening in our hearts and in our our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears. Lord, if there are any areas where we are unaware of the truth of how things really are, Lord, I pray that you would reveal those things right now. Lord, please bless the teaching of this word and speak through me, Lord. Help me to honor you through my words. In Jesus' name, amen. As we jump into the text, um, I just want to point out that the ancient city of Laodicea, including the church that was found within its borders, was wealthy. We first hear of the Laodicean church when Paul mentions it in the letter to the Colossians. And most likely the church here was planted during Paul's time in Ephesus, possibly through the ministry of Epaphras as he came from Ephesus back to Colossae and then possibly Laodicea, even as early as 60 AD. The church in Laodicea was thriving, successful, and comfortable. Unlike the church in Smyrna, there was wealth, there was status. Unlike the church that we talked about last week in Philadelphia, there was power, there was influence. The church was on the in crowd in Laodicea. Yet the church in Laodicea received, as you heard, a harsh rebuke from Jesus. Things seemed to be going well, but the opposite was true. Yet even in the case of churches like Sardis and Thyatira and Pergamum, Jesus pointed out that there was a remnant of faithful ones who had done what was right, even though there was correction to be brought. But in the case of Laodicea, the church was unified across the board in its lack of spiritual awareness and effectiveness. So what was the problem that Jesus was writing to correct? Well, the first thing that we notice just on surface level in verse 15 is that the church in Laodicea was lukewarm. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that, in other words, I wish that you were either hot or cold. 
And so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you. Literally, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is a familiar passage to most people. And I'm sure that, like me, for a long time, you've heard this text used as an exhortation to be on fire for Jesus. The common understanding of this phrase, this language, is that hot equals good and cold equals bad and lukewarm equals worse. The hot person we typically assume is a person who is passionate and sold out for Jesus and their, their obedience to him is, is on fire. While we assume that the cold person is one who's closed off to the things of God, one who lives for themselves and the world, and then a lukewarm Christian would be someone who claims to know Jesus, yet they're not really living for him, but they're also not really living for the world completely. They're just caught in the middle. I believe that there's an element of this passage, this understanding of lukewarm and hot and cold in those terms, that is correct and is helpful, because certainly Jesus does not want his followers to be half-hearted. He doesn't want us to be halfway committed, he calls us to steadfast devotion and total surrender. But I want to point out that this common understanding of hot, cold, and lukewarm actually overlooks some, some things in the text and in the context of Laodicea. I think that understanding wrongly shifts the focus of this part of the passage away from what Jesus intended, and instead it shifts us to focus on our emotional amplitude or our depth of how we're feeling as we're serving or not serving. The understanding of hot, cold, and lukewarm in this way basically says, well, Jesus wants you to live at one extreme or the other. He doesn't want you in the middle. But I don't believe that it aligns with the testimony of Scripture to say that God would rather you be a wicked rebel than someone who's in his church struggling and faltering to obey. I don't think that really aligns with what scripture says. Peter does mention that it would have been better for those who have tasted the things of God and then turned away to have never tasted it to begin with. But I think as a whole, God does not wish that we were just rebels. This understanding of hot, cold, and lukewarm encourages us to, in a way, desire and pursue that emotional and religious high. If things are going well, we, we want to get to that emotional, spiritual high. And if things are going poorly, then we just want to give in and we want to do our own thing. Because we're fearful that if we're in the middle somewhere, we're lukewarm and we're going to be vomited out. Certainly, we should want our whole self to be devoted to Christ. We should want our emotions engaged as we worship the Lord. We should want to have feeling and passion in our communion with God. But remember, the, the church in Ephesus was corrected because they lacked passion in their love for Christ. And even in this letter, in just a few moments, we'll see that Jesus uh, demands the church to be zealous, to be earnest. So it's not that Jesus doesn't want our feelings to be deep and involved, but there's something more that he's trying to say that we can glean from the context of Revelation so far and also from the context of the actual city of Laodicea. This isn't about depth of emotion or feeling or passion, but it's rather about faithfulness and effectiveness. The city of Laodicea itself, as most ancient cities were, was built and founded in a strategic location. And in this case, that location was chosen because of its proximity to an intersection of major trade routes. This led to the city's economic prosperity, to its wealth, to its success, but it also created a problem because it wasn't close to a natural water source. Just a few miles north, the city of Hierapolis, however, was known for its magnificent mineral hot springs. Through antiquity, even to this day, 
people travel to those hot springs in the city of Hierapolis to receive relief and soothing from aches and pains. They want to receive the health benefits of that hot water. There's nothing quite like soaking in a hot tub or a hot shower when your body aches, when you're tired, when you're sore. That hot water brings relief. It relaxes, it soothes, it relieves the aches and pains. Meanwhile, just a bit farther southeast of Laodicea, the city of Colossae was known for its mountain spring water. The pure, cold mountain water was reviving. It was refreshing. What do you long for on a hot day when you're feeling parched and dry but a drink of ice-cold, pure water? It quenches your thirst. It brings vigor. It brings new life. But the city of Laodicea didn't have either hot or cold water. They were forced to build an aqueduct and pipe their water from a distant water source that was miles away. And so by the time the water arrived in the city, it was stagnant, it was lukewarm, and it was filled with mineral deposits. You can even see in the archaeological site that the pipes are still there and they're just filled with mineral deposits. How many of you, let me ask you this, when you're thirsty, when you've been working hard, sweating, you're dry, you come in the house and you long for a glass of tepid sulfur water? How many of you, when you're tired and sore, long to come home to a room temperature bath that has a little bit of a smell to it? The point is that the hot water of Heropolis and the cold water of Colossae were desirable. They were sought after because... They served a purpose, they met a need, and they were effective. But the water in Laodicea, like its church, was impure and ineffective. A lukewarm church, a lukewarm Christian, is an ineffective church and an ineffective Christian. It's not accomplishing anything, it's not fulfilling its purpose, it's not meeting needs, it's just there and nobody wants it. But we have to ask the question, in what way was the church ineffective? What were they not doing? And so we can't ignore the broader context of Revelation that we've studied through so far. The context that we've walked through these past weeks is Jesus' assessment of how faithfully each church has carried the flame of his presence upon their lampstand. In other words, the context begs the question, Does this church bear witness about Jesus by faithfully representing him in darkness, in word and in deed, as it was intended to do? The problem in Laodicea that Jesus boldly confronts in this letter is that the people of God, the golden lampstand intended to expose the works of darkness, to proclaim the kingdom of light, was ineffective in its witness. The salt had lost its flavor, the lamp had been covered, the water was stagnant, lukewarm, impure. They had one job, and they weren't doing it. As the letter continues, the primary cause of this ineffectiveness becomes clear. I want you to look at verse 17. Jesus says, For you say, he's looking into the hearts of the church of Laodicea, he's knowing their thoughts, and he's saying, you you say, you believe, you think that I am rich and I have prospered. Remember, the city of Laodicea was wealthy. It was known far and wide for its wealth. And the church in Laodicea was wealthy also, as Jesus points out. They thought they were wealthy. But think about the broader culture of Asia Minor at the end of the first century that we've been talking about throughout this sermon series. Laodicea was in that world. If the Greco-Roman society was culturally opposed to Christians and the Jewish community was religiously opposed to Christians, how was the church in Laodicea wealthy and successful? There doesn't seem to be any persecution or any hardship other than maybe some nasty water Jesus' assessment of the heart of this church was that they saw themselves as prosperous. They saw themselves as in need of nothing. 
And my point is that in order for this to be the case, for the church to have prospered in some way, we can only assume that there must have been some type of spiritual and moral compromise happening so that they might blend in with the culture around them and get in on that prospering that was happening. The same trade guilds and Roman gods and pagan temples that we talked about in the other cities ruled the day, even in Laodicea. The same immorality was to be expected if you wanted to be on the in crowd. So the text doesn't specifically call out, as it does in the other churches, any particular areas of compromise, but we have to, to rightly assume and to read into this text that there was compromise taking place. They'd compromised their witness. And beyond their polluted and compromised witness, which was required in that context to become wealthy, they then became self-sufficient. They said, as we see in verse 17, I need nothing. When you compromise God's design for provision and prospering, you begin to view yourself as the source. When you work angles and cut corners to chase after worldly wealth, what you do in those moments is you remove God from his rightful place as your gracious provider and you put yourself in that role as the one who has to continue compromising and taking shortcuts and conforming to get that prosperity, that wealth, that material possession. You no longer need God in those moments when you've taken him off his rightful throne. As one pastor puts it, if the people like you and the money is flowing, what else do you need? And the church in Laodicea felt that way. They had become like the city. And as Paul would say, they had, be, they had become conformed to this world. Their witness was compromised. Their witness was utterly ineffective because they were consumed by the, the compromise and the self-sufficiency just like the world. And they didn't even realize how bad the situation was. Jesus' golden lampstand in Laodicea had one job, one role to play, one mission, and they failed. And so Jesus, verse 14, the Amen, the God of truth, the faithful and true witness who always said and did everything his father set before him to do and to say in perfect obedience, in total dependence. He's the faithful witness, the one who succeeded in that, bearing witness about the father to the world who didn't know him. Jesus, the source of all things, the foundation of all creation, says to the lukewarm, ineffective church, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, and you make me want to vomit. But here's the astounding character of our merciful Savior. To that wretched failure of a church, he says, here's what I want you to do to fix it. He gives the solution, and he so graciously extends to that pitiful church an eternal promise of great reward and the condition required to receive that promise. And the promise that he holds out to them is nothing other than the ancient promise that has been repeated in different language to all the churches throughout Revelation so far. It's that ancient promise that Jesus intends to dwell with his people, to share his glory as their God and King, so that all of our needs, all of our desires are completely fulfilled in him forever. Look at the language in this letter that Jesus uses to describe this promise. First in verse 18, he essentially says, so that you may be rich, so that you may be clothed, so that you may be able to see. Verse 20, he says, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Verse 21, he says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. If I could sum up this language and this promise, it would be in this way. 
While the cause of ineffectiveness was compromise and self-sufficiency, like the world, the promise, the thing to be sought after, the solution to their problem, is authority and fellowship with the king. See, here's the thing. The high king of heaven desires to share himself with his people. He delights in sharing his glory. When he redeems sinners, when he saves us, when he brings us to his table and seats us on his throne with him, he receives glory because he's the one who won the victory, who extended the grace and mercy to bring us there. And so in those moments, his glory is magnified. You are made for adoration. You are made to worship and adore your creator and savior. You are made to enjoy him forever, to receive all of your needs and wants from him, to be fulfilled in him. For from him are all things, and to him are all things. To him deserves, belongs the glory. He deserves it all. The point of the church's role as a witness, as a lampstand in the darkness, is to participate in, to co-labor in Jesus' work of gathering those people to himself from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He calls us to participate in that so that the promise may be fulfilled and we're with him forever. He calls us to be his tool and his vessel to complete his mission. And in order to stay on task in that mission, we have to ever keep before us this eternal promise that Jesus will dwell with his people. He will be our God and we shall be his people. We shall serve him forever in his glory. We will be seated with him on his throne to rule as a kingdom and priests forever. Yet the church in Laodicea had shifted their focus off of that promise onto the temporal. They wanted the wealth. They wanted the clothing, the garments. They wanted the benefits of the the medical industry in their city, the salve for the eyes that brought relief. They wanted these things, but they didn't look to the gracious provider, God, the almighty king, to provide those things, to fulfill those things. And they weren't on task in their one mission as a church to represent Christ in the darkness. There's a line from a Zach Brown song that says, there ain't nothing like the real thing. And the real thing is always and only found in God. Yet Laodicea was looking everywhere else to get that. They were chasing the counterfeits, not the real thing. But here's the thing. True wealth is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's not gold. Laodicea was known for their banking industry, for their, the amounts of gold that were being traded in the city. But true wealth, true gold is found spiritually in the Lord. True clothing is the perfect righteousness of Christ that he puts on us. The city of Laodicea was known for its fine wool. Yet Jesus says, that is nothing. True clothing is found in me. Laodicea was known for their ointment to help people with poor eyesight. Yet Jesus says, true sight, the salve to help you see, is knowing God face to face. It's found in me. True fellowship is to have Jesus enter into your home and sit at the table with you in intimate fellowship, communing with you over the table, relating to you face to face. And true power and authority as the Laodiceans sought to have influence in society, the true power and authority is found in being seated with Christ upon his throne, being hidden in him because of his victory over death, his victory over sin and the grave. As we talked about last week, he's the one who holds the keys. He's the one who opens the door. He's the one who grants access to his throne. And true power and authority can only be found through Humble, faith-filled submission to that king who holds the keys. But there's a condition to receive this promise. There is an if. In verse 18, he says, To receive this true gold, 
To receive this true clothing to cover your nakedness, to receive true sight, you have to buy from me. In other words, you have to come to the Lord alone. You can't find it anywhere else. You can only find the real thing in Christ. In verse 19, he says, So be zealous and repent. In other words, if you repent. In verse 20, he says, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. Verse 21, The one who conquers. In other words, if you conquer. Point being is the condition to receive this promise is earnest repentance. That's the only way that this problem can be solved. When we've strayed away from our true purpose as the church of God, when we've neglected to serve as his faithful witnesses, the only option is to repent or be spit out. So there has to be something of an exchange that happens. And we talked about this several weeks ago. Repentance has to be something of a reset and a letting go, a turning away from and a turning to, a picking up something else. We have to turn away from the counterfeits of this world, the material possessions and sense of security we find there, turn away from that and turn to the king, our ultimate provider. There's a letting go and a taking up, a turning away and a turning to. The condition to receive this eternal promise of fellowship and authority with the king is to repent. I also want to point out that the words that he says to the church in Laodicea are words to the church. These are still people of God. The lampstand is still there. Jesus is still present. He says, if anyone hears my voice, I'm, I'm knocking, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. I'm present here. You're ignoring me, but I'm present. This is still a church. These are not unbelievers, but they're actually the people of God. And he says, the, the discipline and the rebuke that I'm bringing to you is because I love you. As harsh as it is, as bold and blunt as it is, He's offering the correction because he loves his people and he longs for us to long for him. He's calling us to repentance, to forsake this world and to live for him. So what does this mean for our church? You know, as I thought about this, I don't see our church as one that is completely and utterly blind to spiritual realities. I don't see our church as across the board compromising and being immoral to get maybe we take shortcuts we fail we mess up but i don't i don't necessarily think across the board we align very closely with this church but i also i don't want to lean too far the other way and and to to be led to believe that there isn't something for us here and I think that point, the, where the rubber meets the road for our church, is not necessarily the compromise, which we've talked about that in several other messages in this series. Certainly it's important. But I believe that the issue of self-sufficiency is one that is very relevant for our church. It's very relevant for our society at large. Because to be honest, in our culture... For the most part, we have everything that we need. We've got our homes, we've got our jobs, our income, we've got our Trump money right now, we've got the Christmas presents that you asked for, we've got our family vacations, we've got our vacation homes, we've got our retirement accounts, we've got our insurances, all different kinds of insurance, we've got, uh, you name it, we've got everything we need. As I was thinking through this message and studying this text, um, some of you guys are aware, I, I shared some videos of what's happening in the church in Iran right now. And here's my point. We have to kind of zoom out of our context in a uh, similar fashion to what I mentioned when it comes to the church of Smyrna, when it comes to the issue of persecution. We've got to look around the world at what's happening in the broader church and realize that there's something of a dulling down in the American church, in our society. There's something of a numbing that has taken place because we have so much freedom. We have so much provision. God has blessed us, yet we become ineffective because we're self-sufficient. 
And to be honest with you, I don't rightly know all of the ways that we need to go about fixing it. But it just feels to me like this, this burden on my shoulders that we're so self-sufficient, we're so self-dependent, we don't have need of God oftentimes. How many of you feel your desperation and your need for God every moment of the day? And now here's the thing. I do, I understand and I recognize that there are people in our church who feel their need for God. I don't believe that this is an across-the-board blindness in our unique church. But I, I just, I can't help but get this point across that in our culture, like, we're just so blind to this. And Luke chapter 12 just really came to my heart and the whole chapter I mean it's so powerful when you read this letter when you think about the context of Laodicea their lack of self-awareness their self-dependency you read Luke 12 Jesus gets at all of this stuff material possessions worldly sense of security being anxious about the things of this world and being prepared for the master's return I want you to turn to Luke chapter 12 I'm going to close with this. We have to be a church that is dressed and ready for action. There's got to be a sense of urgency at Mercy Gate Church in our role as witnesses. Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 35, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. You hear the parallelism there? Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. And if he comes in the second watch or in the third, and he finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he wouldn't have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Family, at Mercy Gate Church, we've got to get on our knees before the Lord and ask him to, to break through this American sense of dependency upon all of the worldly possessions that we have all the worldly security that we feel around us, we've got to ask the Lord to break through that because I, I desire for our church to be effective, to be hot or cold depending on the situation. We can't think about ourselves as a thermometer that just reacts to external conditions, but we are to be a thermostat that is controlled by our master. And so when there's, when there's cold that needs to be heated up, we serve him in that way. When there's heat that needs to be cooled, we serve him in that way. We're affecting the environment around us as a thermostat does. We're not ineffective. We're not lukewarm. We're not stagnant. We need to be used by our master who is returning and who has positioned us to accomplish this through his power and authority. I long for our church to be effective in our witness. We cannot be held down by compromise and self-sufficiency. So let's do business with the Lord. Let's examine our hearts. He says the condition is we, just, we need to repent. We need to come to him. We need to buy from him all of our needs. And that doesn't mean that we, there's an actual transaction taking place because we know that he gives us all things by his grace through our faith in what he's done. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the faithful and true witness who has done so well to make known the Father, our God, to this world who didn't know you. You were so faithful, you were so obedient, and so effective in your witness and Lord, you're the source of all things, the foundation of all things. You're the firstborn of the new creation. You've inaugurated this new kingdom to come. You've inaugurated the, the reconciling of all things through your death on the cross and through your resurrection, your victory over the grave. 
And so, Lord, I pray for this church, for my brothers and sisters, that we would not be ineffective, that we would not be lukewarm, that we would not be stagnant in our witness. Lord, I pray that where there is compromise, if there is, Lord, that we would let that go and turn away from it, Lord, that we would be honest and true in our witness. And Lord, where there is self-sufficiency, where we feel like we have everything we need and we don't go to you for those things, Lord, I pray that you would wake us up, stir up in our hearts an awareness of our need for you every moment of every day. Lord, I pray that you would do this work of stirring us up to witness that we might feel in an even greater sense our need for you. And as we feel our need for you, we become more effective, and it's this cycle that continues to grow. Lord, would you help us to be a people who knows what it is to repent, who knows what it is to open the door to your presence. You're standing there, you're knocking, and you say, if anyone opens that door, you will come and commune with us. You delight in fellowship with your people. And so, Lord, I, I ask that you would help us to understand these things, to have true spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear, the urgency of our role as your witness. Lord, we have one job. We have one task, and that's to make you known in a world that doesn't know you to live as you would live in this world, to speak as you would speak, to demonstrate that your kingdom is at hand. Lord, I pray you would light a fire in our church, a fire of effectiveness and faithfulness in our witness for you. We thank you, Lord, for your, for your love for the church that, that does discipline us and correct us when we go astray. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that bring us back when we have gone the wrong way. And so, Lord, I ask even for that, that work in our church as we enter a new year. There's many things ahead of us, Lord. And, and I pray yeah, I just I ask on behalf of my brothers and sisters that you would wake us up to these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.